Elijah is in the category of what I think were the greatest men that ever walked the earth. And then again, 300 more times in the New Testament, God is telling us that this same Jesus who has come is coming again. If it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't come from God. If it's not accurate, the prophet is to be executed. God said there's coming a day when I'm going to shake the world. But something will not be shaken. Well, good evening, everybody. It is so, so good to be with you all tonight. I'm, I'm just elated uh, to open up the Word with you once again as we resume our series, Understanding Bible Prophecy. And we have been looking uh, over the last week at a profound passage in prophecy. It's possibly the most important prophecy in all the Bible, and I say that because of the wealth of content that it covers. This is called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. It's found in Daniel chapter 9, and it covers just a, a ton of important concepts in your Bible. Uh, in this single prophecy, you see the Messiah, you see Israel, you see the scope of human history, you see the crucifixion, you see the atonement, you see uh, the coming tribulation, a seven-year period of judgment on the earth. You see a singular individual that figures prominently into the tribulation that we're going to look at in great detail tonight called the Antichrist. You see a very pivotal, uh, pivotal event whereby he enters into a, a covenant with Israel uh, that is a turning point for Israel that really is going to uh, get the machinery going to bring them back to their Messiah. All of this is in this prophecy. It is not a simple prophecy to understand. If you were with us last week, you could attest to that. Uh, your head might still be swimming from last week. Truth be told, my head is a swimming a little bit after last week. Uh, this, is, this is not an easy task to kind of dive deep on some of these, these very complex prophecies. Uh, perhaps that's why our repeat views on YouTube uh, are so high is because sometimes we have to go back and take another look. And maybe if, if I just go back and, and listen one more time, I'll get it a little bit more. Why do we spend so much time talking about Bible prophecy? Why, why put ourselves through this? Are, are we gluttons for punishment? What's going on here? I mean, uh, prophecy is not easy. And uh, it can hurt the head a little bit. And as we look at some of these nuances of Scripture, it takes time, doesn't it? it takes some effort, takes some concentration. Why bother? George Mallory uh, was a British mountain climber. He was one of the first guys to ascend or try to ascend Mount Everest. And he was asked once, why take up such a daunting task? And in his reply, he uttered the three most famous words in mountain climbing. Because it's there. And folks, it's the same way with Bible exposition. Why do we study this book? Because it's there. These prophetic passages are there in God's word. Who put them there? Why God put them there? And it wasn't for no reason. He wants us to seek to understand them. Uh, and so it's there so that we can understand because his word can be understood. Does that mean that you're going to understand everything in Scripture? Probably not. 
Probably not. The Bible tells you all that you need to know. It doesn't tell you all that you want to know. There are some things that are going to remain mysterious to us no matter how hard we try. Some things the Bible just is not all that clear on. But I guarantee you this. I believe that God wants you to want to know. Amen? He wants that hunger. And you know what? I see that hunger as I look out here tonight because you, you're here. There's a lot of things you would be doing on Wednesday night. But you've chosen to come and talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel with Pastor Scott. So I'm honored, okay? And so uh, George Mallory, uh, his words are good enough for me because it's there. Now, that said, George Mallory did die on Mount Everest, okay, in 1924. And his body wasn't found until 1999. So before you showed up here, I hope you left a note, all right? But at the center of this prophecy that we're looking at is a little tiny country a nation, a people called Israel. It's amazing how prominently they figure into Bible prophecy and how they remain uh, at the center stage of the history of the world. Uh, the, the geographic boundaries of that country uh, tell us it's not very big. Uh, where I came from in California, the Central Valley, you could have dropped Israel right in that valley. It would have fit right in there. Why is it so important? Some people don't think it's important. Some people who are Christians will say, God's done with Israel. He's done with them. No, they turned their back on him. And uh, as of the crucifixion, he was finished. Is that true? I say unequivocally, no, that is not true. How do I know that? 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God is not finished. In your notes, he is not finished with Israel because he bound himself to Abraham and he bound Abraham to himself through the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about covenants and how it is God and God alone that establishes those. We don't set those up. He does. And when he makes a promise... He does not break that promise. It is unbreakable. Uh, a divine covenant is unbreakable by nature if it is an unconditional covenant uh, because God does not go back on his word. It would destroy his reputation as God and it would, it would uh, defy his very character. We read in Psalm 89, verse 31 to 37, he says, if they violate, speaking of the descendants of Abraham, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, which sounds like discipline, doesn't it? Parents, do you discipline your kids? You do. Now, you don't beat them, okay? But you, you discipline them. And you know why you do that? You do that because you love them. I discipline my children. If I didn't love them, I'd let them do whatever they want. And so what is God doing here? He is being a good father. But what does it say in verse 33? He says, but I will not. Remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. And so we see this assurance from God. If that's not enough for you, Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Punish? Yes. Chasten? Yes. Uh, discipline? Yes. Take his love away, break his promise? Never. Never. So all that Old Testament, to back that up, here's some New Testament, Romans 11, 1 and 2. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He foreknew them. By no means, he says. In the Greek, that's the phrase megnoto. Uh, that is uh, the strongest negative that you can have in the Greek. Quite literally, if you were to interpret that uh, and, and really get the meaning, you'd have to say, no, 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 not ever, never, let it be, no, it cannot be, such can never happen. That's what it means in the Greek. Uh, Jesus predicted in, in Matthew 28 in his Olivet Discourse, he said uh, that though there was Gentile dominion over the land of Israel at that time, Though the times of the Gentiles have gone on since the Babylonian captivity in the time of Daniel, like we've been studying, someday, he says, the times of the Gentiles would come to an end. They would come to an end, and the Jewish people would be restored uh, to the place of covenant blessing. So they are a miracle people. It's a miracle nation. My kids were in a, a, a musical at their school back in California a couple years ago. They were in Fiddler on the Roof. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? Love that show. The whole cast of characters are, are Jewish in, in Ukraine, and uh, it's, it's a fun, amazing story, very moving. There's a character named Matl. Matl Kemzoil. He's a humble tailor. He's in love with the daughter of Tevya, the dairyman, and, and he sings a song to her, and he, it's called Miracle of Miracles. And he just sings away, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. And he's just singing about all the miracles that God has performed in, in the lives of the Jewish people. He's delivered them from this people and that people, and he's parted the sea, and he's, he's slain the giant through David and all this stuff. All these miracles of God, and then he can, compares all those miracles to you know this girl he's in love with. But anyway... They are a miracle people, there's no doubt. They've, they've, been, they've been ravaged over history. We've studied the dispensations. We've looked at the times of the Gentiles. Israel's been scourged by the Assyrians and the, the Egyptians. They've been hassled by the Hittites and the Philistines. They've been conquered by the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and uh, the Greeks and the Romans. They were the target of annihilation by Hitler and Nazi Germany. They've been dispersed from their homeland, yet they have returned and they stand today as a nation with a charter. They are a sovereign country. They should not logically exist. They should have been wiped out many times over. Why are they still around? I'm going to give you some reasons. Uh, and, and one reason in your notes here is that God has preserved Israel to fulfill prophecy. Not only does he keep his promises, but he has a specific purpose here. He is going to fulfill prophecy. We have been reading about this 70 weeks. Uh, we've looked at the first 69 weeks. How many weeks are left? There's one week left, right? And we are going to see this unfold in Scripture. And the setting for this 70 weeks prophecy, if you recall, just to recap this for you from last week, they're in captivity. They're in what was the Babylonian Empire. Uh, it has become the Persian Empire. Daniel uh, has been there about 69, 68, 69 years. And he is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, the prophet who preceded him back in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, along with Isaiah, have prophesied that the Jews would go through a 70-year captivity. He's at, he's at year 68, 69. He's starting to smell some freedom. 
And so he's thinking, it's time. It's almost time. And he begins to pray. He hits his knees. And so as we read in verse 20 of Daniel 9, he's praying, and then the angel Gabriel comes immediately and begins to speak forth uh, the revelation of God Almighty, this, this prophecy concerning Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city. And so here is the recap. First of all, and I've got this pre-printed so you don't have to write so much tonight, but these weeks of, these are not weeks of days, okay? This is not Monday through Sunday. This is, this is a, each of these weeks is a period of seven years. They are weeks of years. Seventy seven-year periods, all right? And the purpose for the 70 weeks, as we read in Daniel 9, the words of Gabriel, number one in your notes, to finish the transgression, it says, which means to restrain sin in general. That is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's to put an end to sin, that Christ would conquer sin once and for all. It's to atone for iniquity. This is the whole purpose of his death on the cross, is to atone for our sin, uh, number four, God will then bring in an everlasting righteousness, meaning that, that with this prophecy fulfilled, you and I would, would not have to rely on our own humanness, uh, an earthly form of righteousness. There is a righteousness that is above our ways. Uh, number five, God will seal up the vision and the prophet, meaning that the day will come where there will not need to be any form of revelation even in the Scripture. Because we will have Christ here in person, and we will learn from him. He will teach us. And then number six, the purpose of this prophecy is to anoint a most holy place, which we said was uh, in reference to the building of the new temple. There will be a new temple in Jerusalem, uh, the, the greatest of all temples that have ever existed. Now, when does this happen? When is this 70 weeks? Uh, when does it commence? Well, in your notes... It, it begins at the command to rebuild the city. We talked about a decree that would go out for Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. There would be a decree for it to be rebuilt. And we pointed out last week that that happened in history uh, with the word of King Artaxerxes of Persia. He's the one who made that edict. Go on back there, Nehemiah. Rebuild that city. Rebuild that sanctuary. And what happens after the, the first 69 weeks? You've got a 70-week period, which would be a total of, uh, uh, well, the, the first 69 weeks would be a total of 483 years. What's going to happen after that? Well, this, this is going to be at the presentation of Messiah in your notes. We're going to have the coming of an anointed one. A prince. That's when that 69 weeks is going to culminate. There would be the presentation of the Messiah. Uh, I think it's the, the old King James that even translates it as Messiah. Many versions say an anointed one. And so let's just pick it up where we left off. We're looking at verse 26. It says, and after the 62 weeks, remember Gabriel divided the 69 weeks into two. You had the first seven, which is 49 years. That's how long it would take to rebuild the temple. That's how long it would take to complete the canon of the Old Testament. And then you got another 62 weeks, which is 434 years, and that completes the full 69. So after that period, it says, An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. 
And it goes on to say, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay. So after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. I want you to notice that it doesn't say during the 62 weeks. It says after. After. That's important. So there's a total of 69 weeks that have passed. How many weeks are left? One week left. How long is that? Seven years. Okay? So we've got a 70th week. Now, before you get to the 70th week, there's a gap. You've completed 69 weeks, and then God pushes pause on that clock. And now you've got a gap before you get to the 70th week. So in your notes, you've got a gap. And that is utterly essential to understanding this prophecy. You have to understand there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. Okay? Which means in your notes that the 70 weeks do not run sequentially without interruption. There's an interruption. Okay? Now, what's going to happen after that 69th week? An anointed one, a prince, will be cut off. Now, what does that mean, cut off? Hebrew, uh, the word there is karath. Karath, it means to destroy or to kill. Genesis 9 11, uh, this is after the flood. God makes his covenant with Noah. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off. Karath, same word, by the waters of the flood. This is when God said, I will never destroy the earth by flood again. Karath, same word. Deuteronomy 20 20 says, Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down. Karath. Okay? Uh, to, to destroy a tree. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. I'd been like a gentle lamb to the slaughter, did not realize they'd plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit, let us cut him off, cut off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. And so if you were to take the real meaning of that word, cut off, in Daniel 9, 26, you, would, you could say that this anointed one, this Messiah, would be killed. Would be killed. That's what it means. The Messiah would be killed. No Jew who has read Daniel should struggle with the concept that the Messiah would die. His life would be taken, or he would lay it down. And yet, did the Jews struggle with that concept? Yes, they did. Even the disciples of Christ you know, and he told them over and over, Son of Man shall be lifted up, as, as, as you know, in, in the sense of I'm going to be crucified. And they, they struggled with that. They said, Oh, Lord, no. No, how could that be? And he, he would reprimand them for their unbelief. But Daniel knows it. Daniel's writing it here. Furthermore, this word, karath, it's used in Hebrew not merely to refer to someone being slain, but, but it's the manner of death inflicted upon someone who's committed a crime you see this is a criminal's death all right in your notes daniel 9 26 prophetically connects the messiah to the death of a criminal jesus would not only die he would die as a criminal would die okay uh 69 weeks into this prophecy jesus is going to ride into town on the back of an unridden colt as prophesied, what are the people doing? They're waving those palm branches. They're, they're happy to see him. They're saying, Hosanna. They are proclaiming him Messiah. One week later, they're saying, crucify him. 
Crucify him. Well, 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 let me give you Barabbas, this murderer, this thief. No! We want Jesus. Crucify him. Uh, this is what the word means. Leviticus 7.20. If anyone who is unclean eats any meat from the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off. It's a death that they are deserving of by their actions. Proverbs 2.22. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. Karath. Uh, Psalm 37.9. Those who are evil will be destroyed. Karath. Is Christ wicked? Is he evil? No. But this is the manner of death that he has prophesied to endure, the death of a criminal. Now, according to Daniel 9.26, what happens after Messiah is cut off? It says, and the people of the prince who is to come. And this is not the same prince as the anointed one. Not that prince. No, he's been cut off. He's been put to death. This is the prince who is to come. And you'll notice he's not called the anointed one. He's a different prince, a different ruler, the prince who is to come. The people of that prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so in your notes, according to Daniel 9.26, following the death of the Messiah is the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? The, The decree has been sent out to rebuild the city. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. 69 weeks later, Messiah is presented. After that, he is put to death. And then after that, the city is destroyed again. Who's going to destroy it? It's the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who is the prince who is to come? In your notes, folks, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. Now, did this happen historically? Was Jerusalem destroyed after the time of Daniel, after the time of Christ's crucifixion? Yes, it was. It was destroyed. Temple 2. When? In A.D. 70. A.D. 70. Who destroyed it? In your notes, it was Rome. Rome destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so, also in your notes, based on history, we can assume, because who, who does Daniel say Destroy the city, the people of the prince who is to come, who is the Antichrist. We know historically that Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And so based on history, we can assume that the people of the Antichrist are associated with Rome. With Rome. All right? You remember all the world empires that we've looked at? We've looked at Babylon. We've looked at Medo-Persia. We've looked at Greece. And, of course, we looked at the Roman Empire. And then we looked at that future final Gentile empire that will be sort of a revived Roman empire. They will be a hearkening back to Rome. And we, we referenced the feet of iron and clay in Daniel 2. We looked at the ten-horned beast with the iron teeth that harkens back to Rome. There in Daniel 7, the vision that Daniel had. And uh, now we're reading about the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied here in Daniel 9.26 which we know came at the hands of the Romans. And so all of this points to that future kingdom that is ruled by the Antichrist as being of Roman origin, okay? And so Rome will be revived, and as we've discussed, it's it's gonna come back like a beast that went into hibernation and then came out of that cave millennia later, and it will be a a ten-nation 
confederacy. We looked at the ten horns on that beast in, in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at the ten toes on the feet of iron mixed with clay in Daniel chapter 2. And the, the prince who is to come that rules over that will be the Antichrist. So what does this mean? If they're his people, that means that the Antichrist will be of Roman origin. That means, I believe, that, that the, the geographic locale that he will hail from will be the vicinity of historically what was the Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, he will come from that place. And what is that today? Essentially, that is Europe. That is Europe. So I believe that the Antichrist will be European in some sense because that is the place that we find Rome historically. Now, there are a lot of people that spout other theories on this. There are some who say that the Antichrist will be a Jew. I don't believe the Antichrist will be a Jew uh, for a number of reasons. Some say he's going to be a Muslim. I am confident he will not be a Muslim. And I will explain later why I feel that way. But he will be a Gentile. He will be a Gentile. These are the times of the Gentiles, you understand. And so I don't believe that a Jew will be ruling over a Gentile kingdom, okay? Uh, but in your notes, uh, that Roman Empire, this is merely the second phase of it. We've discussed how it never really was conquered. It just kind of went away. It just kind of faded into obscurity. And so in your notes, the Caesars existed in the first phase of the empire, the Antichrist will exist in the last phase of the empire. But long before he ever sets foot on the scene, you've got this people, the Romans, and they destroy Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And here's what it says about that event in verse 26. It says, its end, Jerusalem's end, will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem will be, will be devastating. Okay? As we can look back in history and see that it was. It was devastating. And until the end, until the rise of Antichrist, it will be, in a sense, desolate. In a sense. Jesus said in Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem, he's describing this event to the disciples. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against its people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? So Jesus has here, I believe, in mind, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I believe specifically that is what he's talking about. But he is even predicting beyond that event. Now let me give you a little background to that historic event in A.D. 70. Uh, what you need to know is the backstory is that there were Jewish people that protested the Roman presence. They hated Rome. They hated Rome. In fact, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth uh, had a terrible reputation. So when, when people said Jesus of Nazareth, remember, remember Philip uh, addresses Nathaniel in John's gospel and he, he says, uh, 
we found him, the one prophesied by, by the prophets, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know why he said that? Because Nazareth was a dump. Because the people hated the Romans so bad that they would, they would throw their trash and their refuse out in the street for the soldiers to march through. And so it was known as the city of garbage. But they hated Rome. They hated Rome. And all the, there were many Jews that despised Roman presence there. And that's why they didn't like Jesus, because they wanted him to help them overthrow the Romans. After the feeding of the 5,000, remember they tried to come and take him and make him king by force, it says. You know why? Because their rationale was, this is the perfect guy to help us overthrow Rome. I mean, <laughs> if they try to starve us, he'll just multiply loaves and fishes. I mean, if they try to hurt us, he'll just heal us. If they kill us, he can raise us from the dead. If they try to drown us, he can walk on water. I mean, it made perfect sense. But he wouldn't do it. He had no interest in that. That's not why he came, and so that's why they hated him. But here's the brief history of Israel from A.D. 66 on. May of A.D. 66, you had an open revolt by the Jews against Rome, and they literally ended up taking back Jerusalem. There, there were these protests that grew louder and louder. There were zealots that would, that would go about the city carrying daggers in their belt. They would find Romans and they would, just, they, would just, they would stab them to death, okay? And finally, there was this wholesale open revolt and they took back their city. Uh, and the first thing they dictated was there would be no more sacrifices to the emperor because that had been a, a, a misuse of their temple, and so they abolished all emperor sacrifice. And when they did that, they, they removed that form of worship from the city. And they just that was throwing down the gauntlet at the feet of the empire. And this didn't last long because the emperor wasn't going to put up with that from this little upstart nation. And the emperor's name, by the way, was Nero. And Nero was a sadistic madman. And so he had a general by the name of Vespasian. And Vespasian was sent in to subdue Galilee, and he enslaved thousands. And uh, he, 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 uh, Vespasian really had uh, asserted himself as, as a brilliant, brilliant soldier, and he had subdued the entire region by October of, 19, of, uh, of 67 AD. He took into, into his uh, uh, enslavement, Many prisoners, one of which was the Jewish historian Josephus, which is how we know this, because Josephus recorded all this. And during the course of all this, Nero goes totally mad and commits suicide, which didn't tear anybody up because nobody liked him. But, but it did set off a bit of a Roman civil war, and so there was a lot of jockeying for position. And the guy who ends up ascending to the Roman throne was Vespasian. And so he's the new emperor, and he's got a son by the name of Titus, and he sends Titus in to Jerusalem. Titus lays siege to Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 70. Uh, he, he takes a force of 100,000 Roman soldiers into Jerusalem, 100,000. Keep in mind, Jerusalem had a population at the time of about 200,000. Okay. Now, their population was much greater during the feasts and everything like that because people would come and there'd be like a million or more in the city. But at this point, there was only about 200,000 people. And so it was, it was a bloodbath. And um, 
they surrounded the city. They had these siege weapons. They had these things called scorpions, which were these rapid-firing uh, devices that took down the walls. They surrounded the city. They didn't let anybody get out of the city. They closed it off. Josephus records that there were 500 crucifixions a day for a time. Uh, historians record that at one point, Jerusalem had a forest around it that was eradicated because the Romans cut down all the trees, built crosses out of them, and crucified uh, people. So there was no shade left at this point. And it, the, historians record that there was just an unbearable stench because of all the dead bodies, and there weren't enough living people to bury these bodies. There was mass death. There was famine that followed. There was plundering. Uh, people would eat whatever they could find, leather belts, shoes, whatever, and whenever that was gone, there was cannibalism on the scene. It was, it was a horrific time. There was plundering. The city was finally torched, and it burned down. Many were carted off to Damascus. Several were executed that had remained up to that point. A lot of them died as gladiators in, in Roman in the Roman Colosseum against wild animals and such and things like that. But the Jews eventually were dispersed. And so in the centuries that followed, they, they, they filled Europe. They went into Europe. And many were massacred in Europe. You had the Crusaders. Uh, when there were Christians, and I, I use that term loosely, all right, that went back to Jerusalem from Europe. They wanted to reclaim the city because at that point in the Middle Ages, it was under the control of the Muslims and they wanted to claim it, you know, for Christ. And then as they, as they went back toward Jerusalem, they were thinking, well, if we reclaim it, then the Jews are going to want it back. And so every time they encountered a Jewish community as they crossed Europe, they massacred them. And so this people has been, uh, they've been the scapegoat for all of the world's ills. In 1290, King Edward I ordered all the Jews to leave England. In 1348 and 49, you had this black death that swept around the world. Well, guess who got the blame for that? It was the Jews. And so people took their anger out on the Jews. They eventually left Europe. They fled in great numbers to Poland. They went to Russia. And that's where a lot of them stayed. Until after World War II, after, after Hitler tries to uh, exterminate six million of them, they manage to survive as a people, and they end up coming back to the land. But in your notes, what I want you to understand is that that phrase that we read in the scripture, desolations are decreed, here's what it refers to. It refers to the hardship, atrocity, and dispersion suffered by Israel since the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was not the worst of it for them, as I've just made that clear. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. And there would be great desolation in the land after Messiah was cut off, as prophesied by Daniel. And yet they came back to the land. 1948, here they are. They'd already been, begun to trickle back since, I'd say, about 1914. They were trickling back into this, this, this nation, this ge geographic location. And by 1948, after World War II, they were a nation with a charter. Miraculous. What's happening? They're being set up for something. God is orchestrating their relocation to the land. We read in Daniel 9.27, it says, And he, who? 
Antichrist. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So he is the Antichrist, the prince who is to come. What's he going to do? He's going to make a strong covenant. With who? With the Jews. With Israel. For how long? One week. How long is that? Seven years. And so in your notes, Antichrist will make a historic treaty in the future with Israel intended to last seven years. Right? So this period, God's already ordained. It's going to be seven years. Antichrist is going to make this covenant with them, and it will, it will in his mind, be intended to last seven years. All parties involved have that understanding. This is a seven-year covenant. But this is referred to as one week. So we're back to the language of weeks, right? Weeks of years, period of seven years. So, so far, we've talked through the first 69. we got one week left. There's a gap in there, right? And so this next week is coming. So in your notes, the intended duration of the covenant is the final week of the prophecy. It's the final week of the prophecy. I I need you to understand that Daniel's 70th week is what we call the tribulation, the tribulation period. That is what the book of Revelation describes. Now, some people think that Revelation is not talking about a future period. Some people think Revelation is describing what happened in A.D. 70 the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome. They they read Revelation, and that's what they get out of it, okay? Um, That is not my interpretation at all. Not at all. I have a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation. This is something that is yet future for you and for I. AD 70 is in the rearview mirror for the book of Revelation. How do you know that, Pastor Scott? Well, I could give you evidence. I don't have time to go into all the evidence tonight. Maybe that's a topic for our Q&A. Uh, but there is evidence that the book of Revelation was written well after A.D. 70. There, there is a theory Revelation was written in the 90s, A.D. 90-something, okay? And if that is true, that's a slam dunk, that this event has nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. You can't make that case because it's prophesying it as something that is future, Okay? And it is the final week of Daniel's prophecy. All right, so there's a gap. There's a gap between week 69 and week 70. Uh, It's going to come after Messiah is uh, presented, after he's cut off. So it's going to last, you know, we already know the gap comes after he's presented. It's going to last at least as long as it would take for him to be crucified. It would obviously last until AD 70 when Rome would be destroyed uh, when Rome, excuse me, when Jerusalem would be destroyed by Rome, and if the gap could last that long, then it it could be an undetermined gap, couldn't it? And so, how long would the gap last? In your notes, it's going to last until the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. Has that happened yet? No, that has not happened yet. Gaps are very common in your notes. They're very common. In Scripture, this is not something dispensationalists or, or pre-tribbers or premillennialists or whatever have concocted to try to make our interpretation fit. Gaps are present in Scripture. Let me give you an example. I've talked about this before. Isaiah nine six, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now watch the gap. It's going to be after that phrase and and before the next. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Okay, is there a gap in there? Well, there would have to be. Because this is referring to the birth of Christ. Was the government on his shoulders as an infant? No. Was it on his shoulders? Was he ruling governmentally during his public ministry? No. When will the government be on his shoulders? In the kingdom age. In the future millennial reign of Christ. He'll be the government. He will be the government. All right? You've got a chart here uh, that I've given you tonight. You could just take a peek at that. Uh, the concept of that chart is very old. It was put together by a, uh, an artist and a theologian named Clarence Larkin. I have updated that. I, I gave it some new illustration there, and this is called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecies. So you see a figure there on the left side representing the prophets of the Old Testament, and you, you can kind of trace his gaze, and you can see that his line of sight is along some mountain peaks, and each mountain peak represents a future event, and he sees all those peaks. What does he not see? He does not see the valleys. He does not see the valleys, the gaps in between the mountain peaks, okay? So there was a great period of time unforeseen by the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we know this from 1 Peter 1.11. Peter says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the, the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He's saying they searched and searched and searched, but they, they, they didn't have it all worked out. So what were they searching and inquiring? Uh, they were searching and inquiring because they did not understand the gap. It was a mystery. It was a mystery, and that word mystery is very important. Paul uses this word in Ephesians. We've been doing this Ephesians study, and in chapter 3, I shared one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. That word stewardship is oikonomia, also translated dispensation. Okay? The concept of the ages. Okay? The stewardship of God's, what? Grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the New Testament age by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery... He says this word a lot, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. So he's talking about this, this mystery, refers to it repeatedly. What is this mystery what, what, that's made known now? Folks, that's the church. That's the church. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a part of his glorious church. You are the bride of Christ, and you were the, something that was mysterious to the Old Testament prophets. They didn't see you coming. They did not see you coming. People who try to force the church into the Old Testament, uh, that's all wishful thinking. That's part of their agenda. The church is not in the Old Testament. It is a mystery. Paul says so. Peter says so. Okay? And so what is this gap for? 
Primary purposes of the gap in your notes. First of all, to allow for the church and the dispensation of grace. Uh, Okay, we are in the gap. You see that in the chart, that little valley with the church down in there? That's you and me. We're living in the gap, which is more fun than shopping at the gap. Some of you are like, I would love to live at the gap. No, no. Uh, So to allow for the church and the dispensation of grace. Number two, to ensure that the timing of Christ's return is known only to God. All right? Think about that for a minute. The timing of Christ's coming. What does Matthew 24, 36 say? He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, the Son of, nor the Son, he says. But who? But the Father only. The time of his coming. Christ doesn't even know. Right? That is a self-limitation on his part. Who knows? God the Father. It is limited to that person of the Trinity. This knowledge. You and I don't know. If there were no gap, we would know. We would know. Because we'd just do the math. You say, well, I'm not very good at math. Well, somebody would know and they would, they would tell you. All right? But since there's a gap, nobody knows. Nobody knows. All right. Now look at verse 27. It says, and he who, Antichrist, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So here's the purpose of the gap, the third purpose of the gap. It's to put pressure on Israel to make an alliance. God is using the gap to ratchet up the tension. Okay? He is methodically, uh, uh, in a genius way, bringing Israel into this place where they will be prepared to sign a treaty with Antichrist. Why will they do it? They'll be scared. They'll be getting more and more pressure from from surrounding, presumably, Arab nations. What friends does Israel have in the world? Who is Israel's greatest ally in the world? America. America. Let me tell you something that is rather chilling. America is not really recognized in prophecy. You don't really see it. Some people have different opinions on that. That's okay. But it's, it's not recognized in any obvious way. All right? Uh, we are not mentioned there. There's no obvious identification of America in prophecy. You see Israel. You see Babylon. Uh, some believe you see specific nations mentioned in Ezekiel. We're going to look at uh, the Gog-Magog conflict next week. That's fascinating. Don't miss that. And uh, some are like, is Russia a part of that? Come next week and find out. Okay. But no America. Not, a, not obviously, though. Okay, could they be part of that? Maybe. Uh, I'm going to give you three possible reasons you don't see America prominently featured in the end times. It's not in your notes, but if you want to jot them down, kind of interesting. Number one, it could be that the U.S. simply doesn't play an important role in the end times. We might be there, but we will be inconsequential. Okay? We just won't, we won't matter. Okay? And that might be because we possibly would have an extremely weak leader. All right? I mean, I'm not naming any names or anything, but you could, you could imagine a scenario. Okay. That's one reason. Number two, it could be because the U.S. doesn't exist anymore at that point. Okay? Uh, we're a very young nation. 
some might say that this, this is an experiment, this American experience. We've only been around since 1776. A lot of these other nations have been around for thousands of years. Uh, so we might, not, we might not be on the scene anymore. That certainly happened in history. There are nations that once existed that don't anymore. Somebody took them out. We've got enemies, and they're armed. And amazingly, we helped arm some of them. I've got to stop talking. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. But this has happened. So we could become a casualty of history. Number three, it may be, it may be that the U.S. is there and we are among those that reject God and that oppose Israel in the end times. Our, our allegiance to Israel at present could radically change. Very possible very likely. Today we're their biggest supporter. That won't always be the case. Um, especially if the rapture occurs before the tribulation. I'm going to talk about that in week eight. I expect this whole place to be packed week eight, okay? Because that's going to be a fun night. So invite your friends. If they're not here, maybe it's because they got raptured. Anyway, if the rapture comes before the tribulation, that means all the righteous are gone. We're removed. The church is removed. Uh, American foreign policy as it relates to Israel, you have no idea how much of that has been shaped by the religious backgrounds of, of U.S. leadership, uh, presidents and such, okay? I mean, it really has played a role, whether people want to admit that or not. And so when God's church is taken away, that means all the righteous on planet earth, gone. Right now, I would say Israel's support, at least from a religious community, that's from the righteous. That's from the truly born again. When those people are gone, who's left? The unredeemed, the unrighteous. What will the relationship of the world to Israel look like, including America? Radically different, I would guess. Okay. So, all that to say... Israel will find themselves surrounded by antagonistic, very likely, Arab nations, want to see them wiped off the map. The only visible savior in the world for Israel at that time will be this, this, this some kind of confederated Europe, and they will have a leader. And when that finally comes together, this one great ruler will emerge, the Antichrist, and he will come uh, to the uh, uh, to ostensibly to the rescue of Israel, and he will make a treaty to offer them something, protection, something, and they'll take it. They'll take it. Will he keep his word? Nope. Nope. He's a liar. So we read on. It says, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So based on that verse, how long will this covenant go unbroken? Half a week or three and a half years, okay? So the tribulation is seven years. So this is the second half of the tribulation period. So we call that second half, we call that the great tribulation. The whole seven years is called the tribulation. This will be called the great tribulation. And this covenant, what, what were the terms of this covenant? Well, before you can put an end to sacrifice and offering, what do you have to have? Sacrifice and offering. You can't put an end to it if it doesn't exist. Do they have sacrifices going on in Israel right now? Nope. Do they have a temple right now? No. So what are they? That's the reason they're not doing sacrifices. They don't have a temple. And so what are they? What are the, what are the terms of this covenant going to include? They're going to be able in your notes, it will have allowed Israel to build the temple and perform animal sacrifice. 
All right. Is there a temple there now? No. No, not since AD 70. What is there? I've seen it. I've been there on that on the top of that mount, I've walked around. You've got a mosque up there, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You've got the Dome of the Rock, because uh, the whole surface of that mount is controlled by, by Muslims, by Arabs. The Dome of the Rock, they say, commemorates. That is the spot where, uh, where Abraham went to sacrifice Ishmael. Eh, no. It's a little bit of revision there. It's also the site they say that Muhammad ascended to heaven. Muhammad never set foot in Israel. Never happened. So there's a lot of bogus fake history that has been incorporated into their, their thinking. And so a temple is going to be built. You say, well, what's going to happen to the mosque and the Dome of the Rock? Well, I have a theory about that. I have a theory, and uh, we'll look at that next week. But I, needless to say, I think the space will be vacant at that point. Okay. Now, this covenant is going to allow them to build a temple. Who could pull off a deal like that? Um, if you read Revelation, you read the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The guy on the white horse is this guy. It's the Antichrist. He's got a bow and he has no arrows. And yet, he goes forth to conquer. He's got a bow, no arrows. So he's going to rise and it will be a bloodless rise, which means he is a statesman unequaled. Uh, he's a lying statesman, but effective nonetheless. Uh, we've already read in Daniel that this is that little horn, right? And he speaks great things, which means he's a phenomenal communicator, uh, the greatest perhaps of all time. He's going to let Israel have land, uh, security, a temple. They're going to be able to worship for a while. And then in the middle of that tribulation, at the three and a half year mark, the whole thing is off. The treaty is broken. Because then it says in Daniel 9, it says, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. So, at the three and a half year mark, the treaty is broken by an action of the Antichrist that is described as an abomination that causes desolation. That term abomination in Scripture, in your notes, is connected to idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, the Hebrew phrase here is rendered abomination of desolation. Does that sound familiar? We've talked about something called the abomination of desolation. Uh, but this phrase abomination always refers to worship of some false god. In 1 Kings 11.5, it says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Uh, and Jeremiah was dealing with idolatry by the Jews uh, of Milcom, right? And so they would offer human sacrifices and such. It was, it was an abomination. When we talked about an abomination of desolation, it was an act perpetrated by that Seleucid king uh, who went in by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember him? So he was an anti-Semite, came into Jerusalem, commandeered the temple, sacrificed or slaughtered, rather, a giant sow, okay, which is unclean to the Jews, took the entrails of that pig, splattered them all over the interior of that temple, boiled the flesh of that beast down into a broth, made the priests drink it, just desecrated the whole place. And so Jesus uh, references that and then speaks of a coming 
abomination of desolation. And so this is one of those near fulfillment, far fulfillment things. Because by the time Jesus is talking about a future abomination of desolation, Antiochus is dead and gone. So he's not talking about that event. He's talking about something that mirrors that event. And it's what Daniel is writing about right here. And so we've got a near fulfillment and we've got a far fulfillment. Now this phrase on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. That word wing is interesting. It's Hebrew uh, kanaf. Kanaf, in your notes, that is the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple. Uh, The highest point of a temple typically would, no matter what kind of temple it was, it would designate the nature of the worship inside that temple. Uh, The pinnacle of the temple was very, very important. Uh, Satan, when he's tempting Christ, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, cast yourself down, you know? So basically, whatever was, was pictured on the pinnacle of the temple would be the object of worship. So there, there is something that will be depicted on the highest point of this temple that would designate a new object of worship. And there will, in that day, be a designation that would desecrate that temple in the eyes of the Jews. They will see it as no longer being the house of the Lord. It will be an idol temple. That pinnacle will be indicative of the nature of worship going on, and it will be pagan. It will, be, it will not be of the true God. And so it will be ruined, corrupted, and made atrocious to the Jews. So what, what causes an abomination? It's a false god. And in your notes, if a false god is the object or the cause of an abomination, then the false god brought into the temple in that day is Antichrist himself. He will declare himself the object of the Jews' worship. Now, what will prompt that presentation of the Antichrist as an object of worship? In your notes, the worship of the Antichrist during the tribulation will, first of all, be preceded by a miraculous healing. A miraculous healing. Uh, now we're going to dip into Revelation a little bit. This will be fun. All right, you ready? Let's do some Revelation diving here. Okay, Revelation 13, 1 through 3. John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns. That sounds familiar. And seven heads with ten diadems, crowns, on its horns. And blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like, watch this, a leopard its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So already we see characteristics from all the world empires that we've studied. But where does this power come from? We read on. And to it, the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. The dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, all right? So we notice this beast rises out of the sea. The sea is often used to represent Gentiles. The Jews were not known as great sailors. That was not their thing. That was a Gentile thing. And so uh, we take this to mean the Antichrist will be Gentile. we got plenty of reasons to assume that origin already. This just adds to that. Uh, but sometime after he comes to power, he will appear to be fatally wounded. This says that he seemed, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound. That word seemed is important, I think, Uh, but it will sure look like the real thing. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here there is in, perhaps an, an assassination attempt on Antichrist. Later you've got a reference to him being wounded by the sword. So somebody tries to kill him, and yet he lives. So that indicates that he was attacked. Um, but he appears to heal from this uh, uh, fatal wound. Does that mean that he dies and is resurrected? Not necessarily, and I'm inclined to think not I'm inclined to oppose the idea of an actual, literal resurrection here. Uh, now, a person who is killed and comes back to life would certainly make the world marvel. I mean, the last time that happened, we got Christianity, right? And so, uh, considering that the devil is a great imitator of everything that God does, you know, it seems like he would want to portray the same kind of thing happening so as to make the world worship. This individual, that said, I see nothing in Scripture that indicates that Satan can raise the dead. Okay? So the result of this apparent resurrection, in Revelation 13, 4 and 5, it says, And they worship the dragon. Now that's interesting. Who's the dragon? Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast. Who's the beast? Antichrist. The dragon is the devil, Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. And they worship the beast. So they worship Satan. They worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So in your notes, this is going to be a global religion, a global religion. They refers to the whole world, all right? The Jews have had their covenant broken, so the Jews are not worshiping this guy. That's why the covenant is broken. Uh, everything they waited for, for millennia, rebuilding the temple, dream come true, that's gone down in flames. And so it's not Israel. That's worshiping the Antichrist. It's going to be the Gentile world. But notice who it says they're really worshiping. It says they worship the dragon. They worship the dragon. And this is what Paul says as much, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So whenever you worship a false god, you're really worshiping Satan. That's his roundabout, conniving way to get worship. That's what he wants. He wants worship. He took Jesus up to the highest mountain. He says, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down and worship me. He wants it more than anything. And I believe that the final form of apostasy is not simply the worship of some pagan deity, but the worship of Satan himself. Satan turns that temple into his temple. Revelation 13, 8, it says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Every, and there's a qualifier here. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so what that means is that from time immemorial, God has known whose hearts would be truly his. And those who are on that list are the only ones that refuse to worship. And these, these Jews in that day that refuse to worship the Antichrist, they are truly the chosen people of Abraham because there's going to be a revival like the world has never seen among them. So there are only two types of people in that day, those who worship Antichrist and those who worship Jesus Christ because they will come back. After they see what the, what the Antichrist does, they will turn back to Jesus. They will, they will look upon him, as the scripture says, as one looks upon an only son, and they will mourn him, right? And, and they will, they, the 
scales will fall and there will be revival. But it says in verse 5, it says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So in your notes, it's going to last 42 months. 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. Half a week, right? So this guy probably came to power before the beginning of the tribulation, which, by the way, the tribulation starts with the signing of the covenant, okay? When I ask people what's going to start the tribulation, some say the rapture. No. No, the rapture will, I believe it will precede the tribulation, but the beginning of the tribulation is the signing of this covenant. And then he, it's for three and a half years, then he breaks it. Okay? Uh, but he will not truly be the world rule. He will not be, he'll, be a, he'll be in power, but he will not be the ruler of the entire world until after he appears to have risen from the dead. And they come and they worship him. Then he will be the true ruler of the entire world. So that leads to this world religion, you see, which in your notes will be overseen by a false prophet. A false prophet. So Revelation 13, 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. You got a beast from the sea? That's the Antichrist. Now you got another beast. Is this, is this a second Antichrist? No, it's just another beast. Like Daniel saw four beasts. This is another beast. And he's rising from the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So another beast, another, the word for another, alos in the Greek, it means another of the same kind, meaning it's another Gentile. It's another Gentile. And uh, what's interesting is that... uh, I can imagine that this is not a world that is devoid of religion. It's just devoid of true religion because the church has been removed from it. And so all the religion that remains is religion that's askew. And so it may well be that this individual, this false prophet, comes from the world of religion as it existed and has ascended to this place where he is installed in the wake of this perceived resurrection. He will be the, the leader of this new global religion. He's already an apostate. Now he's just going all the way. And what's interesting is that during the first three and a half years of his treaty with Israel, the Antichrist has allowed the apostate church to continue. There's been no, we don't read any persecution of the church, okay? The real church isn't there. But there's religious people there. And there's no persecution of, so he's allowed it to continue. But by the midpoint, what then happens is, we're told that he devours the false church. He devours it and recreates it. He betrays and seeks to destroy Israel at this time. He devours the false church And there's nothing left to religion at that point but him. And he is the object of the world's uh, uh, worship. And in true Roman style, he sets himself up as the only deity. 
Because Satan wants what God has, and he wants it all for himself. God has a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now Satan's got his unholy trinity. Satan, Antichrist, false prophet. It's a sick, sick knockoff. Okay? And just like uh, the true God has representatives in Scripture that perform miracles to assert their authority and, and, and their authenticity as coming from God, in Revelation 13 we see uh, this, this uh, false prophet, this beast performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So in your notes this will involve displays of the supernatural there will appear to be miracles. Can Satan do miracles? Yeah, yeah. Fire coming down from heaven. Uh, you know, he's, he's ripping off Pentecost. You had the apostles with the tongues of fire over their head. Uh, Elijah called fire down with the prophets of Baal in 2 Kings. Uh, at that time, you'll have a couple of figures called the two witnesses that will represent Jehovah God. They will be there in the end times. Some think that they will be resurrected prophets, perhaps Moses and Elijah. Perhaps some say Moses and Enoch, and we don't know. Uh, but they will issue fire out of their mouths uh, and do other miracles. So this is another imitation, another ripoff by Satan. Uh, and uh, he does have the power to do the miraculous, but he's using it to deceive people into worshiping the Antichrist. And uh, it goes on saying, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. What's, what's image mean? Remember we, when we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's image, what is it? It's a statue. They're going to make an idol. They're going to make a, a, an image of the Antichrist in order to worship him. Uh, it won't necessarily look like the Antichrist, but it will represent him. It will represent his power, and it will become a focal point. And uh, Revelation thirteen fifteen says, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. Another miracle. So whatever image will represent Antichrist, it's going to become animated. Okay, and I don't mean in a cheesy Disney World animatronic dinosaur way. Okay, uh, hall, of the, hall of Presidents kind of way. No, this is going to be supernatural. It will appear to be living. And it will, it will put the people in awe, and they will worship the beast. And the grammar here seems to indicate that two actions are conducted by the image itself. It says, and it might cause those who would not worship the beast, the image of the beast, to be slain. Okay, So it comes to life, people worship it, and those who do not, the statue or the image will somehow bring about their death. Uh, there's something about this image that would take life from those who refuse to worship it. I'm thinking about the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was kind of built into that image of Nebuchadnezzar that they would not worship. They say, we're not going to bow. And so they, they took them into the belly of it where they were you know, exposed to the, the flames here. So maybe something like that. Uh, so in your notes, the worship of the beast would be mandated under penalty of death. Under penalty of death. So John sees a glimpse of the martyrs in Revelation. Uh, in this, uh, the martyrs of the tribulation period. He sees them while he's caught up in this vision in heaven. And he gives some info on how those martyrs died during the tribulation. And the nature of their execution is seen in Revelation 20. 
Verse 4, John says, Then I saw thrones. He's in heaven. He sees thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So he sees them during the tribulation, those who have been slain by the Antichrist for refusing to worship. They have their heads taken from them. Beheading appears to be the consequence. Why beheading? I don't know. It's a rather undignified way to go. Historically, it's, it's been you know, used as a grotesque public spectacle to make of people to take someone's head. It's a, it's a horrific, intimidating, very final type of punishment. You don't come back from that. Nobody grows a new head. And so it, it's, it's just, it's just a, an insidious way to terminate life. And we read in Revelation 13, 16 about this image. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And so in your notes, it will serve as the basis for all commerce. This new religion, you got to be part of it if you want to buy and sell. You want to make it? You want to you make a living? You want to be sustained? you got to follow the Antichrist. Uh, there will be uh, regulation, strict governmental regulation. Our government today is obsessed with regulation. Why would we think the government of the end times would be different? It's going to be amped up to 11. And so there's this mark that is necessary to buy or sell. It seems to vary according to verse 17. In some cases, it's the name of the beast. In other cases, it's the number of his name, but it's directly tied to the worship of the Antichrist. There were a lot of rumors during the pandemic about different things going on and government mandates, and some people are like, is this the mark of the beast? I'm like, no, it's not the mark of the beast. You, if you're alive, and I don't, by the way, I think the church will be gone, but if you were alive during this time and you were imposed upon with this mark, you would know absolutely what you're taking you are, in effect, swearing allegiance to the Antichrist. Like it's a willful thing to do it. So it's a universal designation. His name within this numbering system, the exact identification of the phrase is a little unclear, but everyone will be required to take his mark or deal with the consequences. Verse 18 says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. A lot of people have tried to come up with some speculation, some kind of solution as to the riddle of 666. What does it mean? Uh, What could it be? They've tried to connect these numerals with uh, letters in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Uh, Throughout church history, many people have identified different historical figures, uh, Nero, Caligula, uh, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, all right? Dumbest one I ever heard. Uh, I, I was a kid in the 1980s. I actually heard somebody say, they tried to say that, that President Reagan was the Antichrist because he was the great communicator. And, you know, Antichrist is a great communicator. And, and uh, you know, I was like, that doesn't seem like enough. You know, and they're like, oh, oh, well, it's Ronald 
Wilson Reagan. Six letters in each name. Six, six, six. Well, if he was, he's dead now, so I don't think we'd have to worry about him. That's pretty stupid. Uh, But in your notes, listen, here's the bottom line. The identity of Antichrist is not the concern of the Christian. Can I say that again? The identity of the Antichrist is not the concern of the Christian. We are told to watch not for his coming, but for Christ's coming. We don't watch for Antichrist. You don't look out for Antichrist. You watch for Jesus Christ. He's coming. Matthew 24, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Okay, so why does it say let the one who has understanding calculate? Uh, Because the one to whom 666 refers is future to John's time. And John clearly states the number to be recognizable by someone. Probably not you or me. It's going to be somebody in that day. In that day. So his words will still be around in some fashion in that day. So whoever is alive at that time reading Revelation, uh, they will understand. We don't get to yet. Okay. Why 666? God's number is seven. That is the number of perfection. You see it all over the Bible. Genesis, God creates for six days, rests on the seventh day. He sets apart uh, that day as Israel's Sabbath day. Uh, The number seven is used in in many, many ways throughout Scripture. You've got uh, sacrificial animals. They have to be a minimum of seven days old. Naaman is cleansed of leprosy after bathing in the Jordan seven times. Uh, You've got, you know, Jericho. That whole account has seven all over it. You know, they march around the city uh, seven days straight. On day seven, they march seven times around the city, and then he instructs seven priests to b- blow seven trumpets. I mean, it just goes on and on. I, I'm not even scratching the surface on how the number seven is used. Biblical numerology is a fascinating subject, but suffice to say, seven is the number of perfection. It's God's number. Man's number is six. It's one short of God's number, meaning, are we perfect? We are imperfect. We are incomplete. Man is created on the sixth day. Slaves were freed after six years of service. Fields were to be sown for only six consecutive years. Okay? And so uh, when you repeat this number, 666, you are repeating the number of imperfection thrice. Imperfect, imperfect, imperfect. And so you have this abomination. This false God in the form of the Antichrist. Is that the end of this prophecy? No. Back to Daniel. Verse 27. He says, this will happen until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And I love that phrase, the decreed end. What decreed end? The end game is already spoken of in Daniel. We don't even get to... Uh, the info about Antichrist. I'm backing up before we hear about him. The decreed end. So look at verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed. God already has the end worked out. He knows the end from the beginning. 70 weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression. We haven't even heard about Antichrist yet. But, but he's setting up the prophecy to say, here's the purpose of this prophecy. We're going to finish Transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal vision of prophet, and anoint a most holy place. Antichrist is going to desecrate 
the temple. I'm telling you before you even learn about the Antichrist, the purpose of this prophecy is to anoint a most holy place. God gives us the good news first. Amen? And the end of the Antichrist is found in the very beginning. Very beginning. Finish the transgression. Which means in your notes, the very beginning of the prophecy is the guarantee of his defeat. The guarantee of his defeat. In 1 Thessalonians, Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. And God will put an end to him. God is the sheriff. And he's going to bring in the lawless man. And he will end him. He will end him. All right, ponder this, guys. You know all there is to know about the history of the world. All right? Because Daniel just told us. Little bit of you. You know the whole history of the world, even the part that hasn't happened yet. Isn't that cool? That's pretty dang cool. That ought to make you very, very excited. Just imagine if all those people in Washington, D.C. knew what you knew. If all those foreign policy experts, if they just knew the Bible, so much wasted time because Scripture is ignored. Well, that's, that's all I got for tonight. That's, a, that's an awesome, awesome prophecy. I can't wait uh, for the next two weeks. Next week is going to be an amazing uh, study on what will become of Israel's enemies. <sighs> you don't want to miss this. And there's some connections to current events possibly that we'll uncover. Uh, I want to remind you that after we do that and after we talk about the rapture in week eight, on our, on our week nine, which is kind of our last gasp here, we're going to do a Q&A and it's going to be all prophecy related. If you have questions, you can send us uh, those questions. I think we have the email address that you can send this to. Yes, there you go. Questions at thelambschapel.org. So any end times uh, prophecy-related, eschatology, anything that we've talked about that you're like, that didn't make any sense, you sounded like you were smoking beer, Pastor Scott, I need some explanation on that. Uh, you just send those questions in. We'll do our best to address all that we can on, uh, in, in three weeks, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, I just lift up this group. Thank you for their hunger, that they are ravenous for your word. Bless them. Lord, uh, we've just read from Revelation. You predicate that book by saying he who reads this book will be blessed and we believe you we take you at your word so we expect that blessing because it came from you and we ask this in jesus name amen